This is NPR News, and I'm Mike Mulcahy. The campaign for president is getting most of the attention, but there are other important races on the November ballot. Here's a good example. Every voter will make a choice for a state representative and a state senator, and the work the next legislature does will have a big impact on the lives of all Minnesotans. The state budget, which has been running surpluses for years, is now likely to see a deficit. The COVID-19 pandemic isn't over, and there are still lots of questions about crime and policing. This hour, we're going to hear from the leaders of the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat, about their plans and how your vote can change things. We're going to start with the Minnesota Senate. There are 67 members of the Senate. Right now, Republicans hold 35 seats, so they are in charge. Senator Paul Gazelka of East Gull Lake is the Republican majority leader, and Senator Susan Kent of Woodbury is the DFL minority leader. They're both on the line with me now. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Good to be on. Thank you. Senator Gazelka, let me start with you. Uh, Give us the uh, elevator pitch, maybe in a minute or so. What are the main issues Republican candidates for Senate are talking about as they campaign this year? Well, probably the number one one is safety. Uh, We've been talking about uh, the fact that uh, we strongly oppose anybody's uh, desire to defund the police, uh, whether it's the Minneapolis City Council, which is all Democrat, or Congressman Omar, or the fact that the mayor of Minneapolis is now proposing a $14 million cut in the police and, and wondering why crime rates are up. So that will be a big one that we think is very, very important to the people of Minnesota. The second one is with uh, the governor's uh, decisions related to COVID-19. We now have a five, about a $5 billion budget shortfall. Uh, we, we had a $2 billion surplus, so it just switched dramatically. And we think that Minnesotans would prefer divided government for that. So as we handle these very difficult decisions with the budget, that Senate Republicans are at the table in the majority uh, working with the governor and, and uh, the House and, and how we get to uh, a solution. So many more issues. One issue that we constantly uh, stand against is uh, the lit- literature piece is coming out now. They pull out an old playbook and say that we don't want to cover pre-existing conditions. And we remind people that in Minnesota since the 1970s, in a bipartisan way, uh, we have been we have been covering pre-existing conditions. It's never not been covered. And so we want to make sure people know that, that is, that's just not true. All right. We'll get uh, more in-depth on all of those issues. But, uh, Senator Susan Kent, uh, what about the Democrats? What are the big issues your candidates are stressing this year? Um, well, thanks, Mike. Uh, you know, first of all, we are running a strong campaign that aligns with where Minnesota voters are, um, uh, you know. And I think what you hear from uh, my colleague there is a real um, tendency to be divisive. Um, to try to wedge people and and be fear-based. And what we're doing when we're talking to voters, what we're hearing about um, is that folks want an effective COVID-19 response that is based on facts, science, data, um, to get us through this public health emergency, because we know that that's how we can best open up our businesses and keep people working and um, keep our kids in school. Um, They want to make sure that we are improving access to affordable health care and prescription drugs. Um, and they want to make sure that public safety works for everyone um, and that we have good training for our officers and hold police accountable so that all our families are safe. Um, you know, one thing that we really keep hearing, it's a resounding theme among, among Minnesotans, is this really deep desire to bring people together. People 
are tired of the petty political posturing, this divisive rhetoric, like we've already heard this morning, and the lack of transparency and willingness to respectfully talk through the differences. And that's true regardless of what party you identify with. Well, Senator Gazelka, um, are you uh, running a fear-based campaign? And why so much stress on what the Minneapolis City Council is doing all around the state? Well, uh, because the the fact is uh, when you dishonor the police and you have 65 police officers already retiring early and you have crime continuing to go up and nobody wanting to go into Minneapolis-St. Paul now to do the things that they did in the past, somebody has to take a stand. And I'm actually surprised that there has been no condemnation uh, from the Democrat Party on John Thompson, who went up to Hugo and talked about burning the place down. Uh, so we, we actually think it's a very big issue. But I will agree with Senator Kent that people want us to work together. I, I do think that that's uh, one of the issues that we have to figure out. Certainly in an election year, it is always difficult because everybody's drawing the lines about why they think they should be in office. But uh, the idea of working together is important. And, you know, the divisive issue of saying we don't cover pre-existing conditions, that, you know, some of those issues go both ways as we're trying to uh, clarify the differences that we have between each party. Senator Kent, uh, what uh, about that? What about this uh, John Thompson? He's a candidate for the House who did make some uh, some remarks when he was out at a protest at the uh, at the president of the Minneapolis Police Union's house. And what about this issue that uh, it is a bad thing for uh, police to be cut and people do want to be safe? Um, so just really quickly um, on this controversy about um, House candidate John Thompson's comments um, and actions, I mean, inflammatory rhetoric and threatening behavior in that, like we saw in that incident, are just completely unacceptable and inappropriate, regardless of what party you belong to. John Thompson himself has recognized that and apologized for his actions. Um, but we've seen a lot of inflammatory rhetoric from both parties. <clears throat> um, and when you think about our president, who's... Um, whose language is made up of largely inflammatory um, words and images. People think it's okay, and that's damaging, I mean, and dangerous. And so once we start othering our neighbors and thinking of them as less than human or worthy of compassion, you really start going down a dangerous path. But to get back to um, this specific issue, you know, and I appreciate Senator Gazelka talking about working together as well, and he, he talks about that, but it's really hard when, um, you know, even in our worked in the Senate. Um, there's so much dishonesty around this. You know, I remember a very clear conversation. I believe this was in the June special session at the very end of it when he was, when they made as part of their negotiation that they wouldn't accept proposals that would defund the police. Well, I specifically spoke to him about this. There was never any DFL proposals to defund the police. We purely want to make sure that we have community-based solutions um, and community-focused uh, approaches to make sure we're handling the issues properly. You know, when I've worked with law enforcement over the years in my service, um, I hear over and over again that the challenges they have in trying to deal with mental health issues, um, our, our criminal justice system is not fully equipped to deal with that. We need to do better. Um, we need to um, make sure that addiction issues are being taken care of properly. Um, Law enforcement wants some of these important solutions, and we're really committed to doing them in a way that acknowledges um, the differences within our communities and keeps everybody safe. And to to convey it otherwise is nothing short of dishonest, and that does not help people in trying to work together. 
Senator uh, Gazelka, I'll let you have a quick comeback, and then uh, we'll broaden things out a little bit. Sure. I, I don't think my reputation is one of being known of being dishonest. I think it's just the opposite. But there was a conversation, certainly, with myself and, and Senator Kent about that. And the rest of the conversation simply was, well, I'm glad that you don't want to defund the police, but there's not an outcry against the many Democrats, the, the Minneapolis uh, City Council, Congressman Omar, and others that do want to defund the police, or the city, uh, the mayor that wants to cut their budget $14 million. We We think we should be going the opposite direction. We think that Minneapolis, uh, the police requested 400 police, more police in January and did not get that. And so that that's a difference between the two sides. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll let the people decide, but I think streets are safer with adequate police force. Let me ask you one other question, because uh, you brought up John Thompson. Uh, the Star Tribune had a story this week about candidates for the House and Senate, who Republican candidates, who are promoting the QAnon conspiracy, a conspiracy that contends that Satanists and pedophiles run the government and that COVID-19 is part of a plot to steal the election. Uh, what do you think about that? Would you denounce candidates who are promoting that agenda? Yes. Anybody that thinks what you just said, uh, I, I would totally disagree with. And you know, the, the, the races that are in contention, I, I don't hear any of those uh, races that both sides are trying to win uh, say anything like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm not into the conspiracy theories uh, uh, when it comes to elections, I want to make sure they're safe and secure, and there have been some issues related to that that uh, we want to make sure uh, uh, are are fully vetted. But as far as uh, that, the conspiracies around that, uh, I, I do not support at all. Uh, Susan Kent, uh, let, you, you mentioned that you want uh, an effective response to the COVID pandemic. That's one of your big issues. Um, do you think the governor, uh, using his emergency powers, has had an effective response. Um, yes, and I believe that um, the strong majority of Minnesotans agree. Um, you know, the peacetime state of emergency has allowed Governor Walls to open the state's toolbox and take quick and decisive action to protect Minnesotans through this pandemic. And um, extending these powers um, for the time being, for sure, will ensure that Minnesotans continue to receive much-needed support and relief as the pandemic evolves. You know, I just heard the headlines at the top of the hour, as your other listeners probably did as well. Um, you know, we are getting some... Um, you know, really eye-opening and startling case numbers right now. And um, we need to be able to respond quickly uh, when things change, uh, and it's important. Uh, the ability to govern effectively, um, it requires time, thought, and consideration. Um, but in the Senate, we had a serious lack of substantive hearings all summer on a serious response for COVID-19 and the issues that Minnesotans are facing. Uh, so, yes, DFLers will continue to support the governor's emergency powers because we're not willing to gamble with the lives of Minnesotans by putting the response in the hands of a Senate Republican majority that has time and again downplayed the seriousness of the pandemic. I mean, Senator Gazelka himself is on the record of saying we don't need masks, we don't need capacity limits in our in our businesses and our um, facilities. Um, and, you know, this is this has been a repeated pattern of downplaying the risk that it plays to our full communities. We know that we can't just isolate vulnerable people. We know that it's not only older people who are vulnerable. Um, I hear from parents all the time who are so concerned about sending their kids to school because they understand that there are real risks not to their kids and also to their families. 
Senator Gazelka, you've been trying to end the governor's emergency powers for some time now. Uh, what would be different if Republicans are still in charge next year and uh, those emergency powers do go away? What would Republicans support as a response to COVID? Well, if the emergency powers went away, the governor would have to work with the legislative body on the solutions. And so, and so instead of closing the schools and, and so that roughly half the kids couldn't be in school, we'd have a conversation about how we get the kids into the classrooms because we know that that's essential. And you think about we're, we're not quite to 2,000 deaths. Uh, that tells you that this is very serious. Uh, I always say it's serious. It's a pandemic. Uh, but what the governor has chosen to do with unilateral powers is what I've disagreed with. He made the decisions he made based on models that said there'd be 50,000 deaths, and there's been 2,000 deaths. And in the first two months, we gave him a half a billion dollars almost immediately so that we could get personal protection equipment. We could make sure we had the beds that we needed. But the numbers didn't add up. And, and so now testing is way up. So we're going to have a lot more people that are infected it's a virus that will run through the population. Uh, so I try to look at the number of deaths per day and the number of beds that we need per day. And deaths are six. And that's six terrible losses. Anybody that loses their life, it's, it's, it's a bad thing. But if you look at where they're coming from, the vast majority are nursing homes. That's where we need to put the focus we have to figure out how to get our kids back in the classroom. Um, the uh, American Pediatrics said that we should distance uh, at three feet, not six feet, so the kids could get into the classroom. It's something I've been talking about uh, and will continue to talk about as we move forward. So there should be no mask mandate? Should businesses just be allowed to reopen? Uh, people gather yeah. as they did before the, this all happened? Well, hopefully they would follow the CDC guidelines, which, which is what we recommend. Follow the guidelines, but they shouldn't be mandates that uh, then the state government can come in and shut down and, and close businesses. The hospitality industry says right now we may have 40% of that industry uh, go out of business because of how we're uh, handling this. So it is very serious, uh, but they should be guidelines and not mandates. That's maybe one of the differences. We both think it's serious. I, I, I think this is a pandemic. We've had other pandemics that we have to navigate through, but you don't shut everything down. We now have over a $5 billion shortfall, and how we're going to be able to pay for that next year is going to be extremely difficult. And if it gets worse, uh, the problem will be even greater. So we have to balance the other things like making sure the kids get an education. That's a critical thing that we have to have and then making sure that our businesses survive. So, That's uh, Republican Senator Paul Gazelka. He's the Republican majority leader in the state Senate. Senator Susan Kent of Woodbury is here as well. She's the DFL minority leader. Again, just to remind everybody, uh, you will choose a state senator and a state representative on the ballot. Maybe you've already chosen because people have, are already voting. Senator Kent, uh, if it were a Republican governor exercising this kind of emergency power, wouldn't Democrats have similar concerns? First of all, I just want to say, you know, in response to what uh, Senator Gazaka was just saying, this notion that we have to take away the governor's powers, which, by the way, there are emergency powers in every state in the country, and President Trump has declared a national emergency as well. So I'm not exactly sure why Minnesota needs to be an exception there. But it's a false choice to say that we have to take away his powers in order to work together. Um, and, you know, I would like to believe that we can, in good faith, try to work together together. 
Um, if we are working based on facts and data and science and listening to the health experts, because that's who is advising the governor, and that is what is driving Governor Walz's approach. And if we had a Republican governor who was doing the same thing, I absolutely would be willing to work with him. And if we were in the majority and I were the majority leader, I would be doing the job of having the hearings that are substantive to address real proposals and make the legislature effectively part of the conversation as opposed to just um, keeping returning to this vote uh, month after month. And I just want to say once again, we all agree that we want our kids in school. We all agree that we want our businesses open. The problem is that in the United States, largely because of an ineffective federal response, we have a horrific response and uh, lack of management and control of this virus, unlike really almost any other country. And so if we could effectively manage the virus, that is our best way to keep our businesses open, to pe- get people back into restaurants, feeling safe again, and to get our kids back in school where they need to be. Senator Gazelka, will the Republican majority vote to fire another one of the governor's commissioners if, if and when there's another special session, if the governor wants to extend his emergency authority? It is not our goal to fire commissioners uh, related to COVID, but the two uh, commissioners that were fired, uh, I went to the governor in February on both of them to say that they were not doing their job. I did that privately because I felt like uh, it was in the best interest of the state if if we try to work together and find a different spot for them. Uh, We met again in March and then uh, again with the commissioner of commerce uh, a couple of weeks before we Uh, decided to remove him from office. And so that's not our intent. I do want to circle back to uh, the answer that we're following science. Um, Just recently, there's been articles from scientists from Oxford and other articles, scientists from Harvard, talking about the fact that, um, you know, just uh, that, that there is something called herd immunity that we have to figure out how we do with this virus, just like we did with other viruses. So point I'm just trying to make is is scientists are all over the board on this because it's it's not easy to solve. And so trying to work together and look at all the data, I think, is really important. Isn't herd immunity, though, the best way to get that, a vaccine? And if you, if you just open everything up, herd immunity means many more people will get sick and presumably many more die, doesn't it? No, vaccine and herd immunity are not the same thing. I mean, it's. I think the vaccine is where we all want to get to, but just like other viruses, uh, over time they mutate and you need a different vaccine every year. But herd immunity means that you know, the population uh, gets the virus and, and grows immune to it as a population. Uh, if you look at the number of people that are actually getting the virus with very little symptoms, um, that, that is a large percentage of the population happens to be the people that are over 70, particularly over 80, that we have to pay attention to. They're the ones that really suffer from this virus, and which is why in the beginning I said we should shelter at home seniors and not the entire population. Uh, Even the the governor's own modeling showed that that would have produced the same results as if we had sheltered in place everyone. Susan Kent, I'll let you respond to that. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, because if I just heard Senator Gazelka correctly, he thinks that herd immunity, even without a vaccine, is the, is the strategy here. And the, everybody who's run these numbers, based on what we know about this still very new virus, means millions of Americans dying. Um, 
that is not a strategy. That is not a plan. And that is certainly not acceptable to me and um, my colleagues in the DFL. We need to manage this virus carefully and safely. We need to have people wearing masks to protect each other. Um, and uh, we need to have good testing and tracing and make sure that we are providing support for people when they are exposed to this virus so that we can stop the spread as we've seen in countries around the world. Um, it is, it is, um, it, it, it's just unbelievable that here we are in the United States of America in the situation that we're in and that we have so uh, just dismally failed our people in um, managing this virus. And, and clearly the Senate Republicans want to keep doing it just the way it's been done and we need to do better. Uh, our time is starting yeah, to... Yeah, I, I, I need to say, just talk Giselle. briefly about that, sure. because the millions dying, or in the state, uh, 50,000 dying, have been way, way off. And that's produced tremendous fear, which is, is, is part of what we have to be careful with. I have always said that we need to follow the CDC guidelines as far as how to manage through this. Uh, but we have other viruses that you don't stop, you manage through and you get vaccines, and, and you can do both. So I'm not saying just expose everybody that that's the direction, uh, but we should not uh, make people overly afraid and say millions and millions of people will die when in the United States 200,000 people have died. Well, let, we're running a little short of time. Running a little short of time. Susan, Kent, uh, let me just turn to the state budget. How big is the problem you're looking at? What do you think it'll take to fix it? Um, obviously, uh, the budget is a significant issue. Again, because of COVID, we had a, a surplus until COVID hit, and we had to, uh, our businesses had to close down, um, and people are staying home and not spending. The American economy is driven two-thirds by consumer spending, so the quicker we can get our economy up and running, the, the, the better the effects will be on our budget. But yes, um, a lot of people have lost their jobs and were laid off due to the pandemic, and a lot of, many people have filed for unemployment. Um, so we are living in a time of extreme uh, inequality that has been made worse by COVID-19 and families are making hard decisions. Um, but we need to come together to um, build our communities and our businesses, our safe roads and bridges, affordable housing, public transit. We need to invest meaningfully, um, but we need to make sure that um, as we face a budget um, deficit, that we are looking at a mix of both um of, of all solutions, um, Minnesotans are making tough choices, and the role of our government is to make choices a little easier on them by making sure their families have what they need, a good and inclusive education system, affordable health care, good jobs, and a healthy environment. And, um, you know, we have the power of the purse in the legislature, so it's our responsibility to make sure we're careful stewards of taxpayer dollars while we ensure that no one's getting left behind. We can't just cut our way back to a surplus or solely raise taxes back to a surplus. Um, and we're going to have to keep all um, solutions on the table. Senator Gazelka, all solutions on the table for Republicans? No, let me just talk about the debt first. It wasn't COVID directly. It was what business, uh, how government responded to COVID. Uh, there are some states that have a surplus uh, as a result of how they managed through COVID. We have at least a $5 billion shortfall uh, because we shut down uh, businesses. We sheltered everybody at home and the economy froze and so that we have a we're in a difficult spot and that's why i talk about we have to figure out how to manage through it because there are so many other variables that uh, create trouble for individuals and families and businesses if we do it the way we have but 
I think the biggest thing, and I've been saying this since April, is we should have cut each agency 5%. Other states did that, 5 and 10%. We chose not to. The governor chose not to. We could have saved $100 million a year doing that, which would be a big number when we're trying to close the gap next year. And so I still advocate for that as our first step. The good news is uh, over the last number of years of, of not being in a recession, every pot of money has been filled up, uh, and we have that surplus uh, that will also be used as well. But so we can manage through it. I don't think we should be raising taxes. We already have the second highest income tax rates in the country. We have high sales tax. We have high property tax. You know, so it's going back to more taxes in a, in a state that's already a high tax state, I think, is problematic. But I do believe we'll find our way through it. Uh, it's going to be difficult. And it's something that I think it's Minnesota's best served if, if the Senate is in Republican majority so that we have a seat at the table. Almost out of time. Senator Gazelka, where do your candidates have to do well in order for you to keep the majority in this election? Everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I believe we will keep the majority, but, you know, rural is different from suburbs, which is different from Minneapolis-St. Paul as far as some of the things that people care about. But really, we have to do well everywhere. We intend to keep the majority, but I know uh, Senator Kent uh, intends to take it from me. Senator Kent, where do the Democrats have to uh, do particularly well in order to, uh, uh, you know, pick up those, at least those two seats you need to take the majority? Right. Well, um, certainly the suburbs are energized unlike anything I've seen, and I certainly see it in my own community. Um, uh, you know, people really see, people who work in healthcare, people who work in tech and science, they understand that the lack of Republican response, both at the federal level and um, here in the state, are a big part of what's holding us back. And they are just incredibly frustrated on a lot of fronts. They understand that we can do better um, for Minnesota. This pandemic and um, the, uh, the, the discussions and the uh, response to the murder of George Floyd have demonstrated that we have to um, we can't go back to normal. We have to do things better. And they understand that GFLers are committed to these opportunities. We also have some um, real opportunities um, to pick up seats in uh, greater Minnesota as well. You know, we are proud that uh, the Senate GFL caucus really represents all parts of our state, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the suburbs, and greater Minnesota. And we believe we can completely expand that because we understand that Minnesotans are looking for the type of vision and solutions that we're proposing. Well, we'll see what the voters think. Thanks so much to both of you. I really appreciate your taking the time to do this. That's Senator Susan Kent of Woodbury. She's the DFL Minority Leader in the Minnesota Senate. Senator Paul Gazelka of East Gull Lake is the Republican Majority Leader. And uh, coming up, we'll check in with leaders of the Minnesota House. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy, and we continue now with our look at the campaign for control of the Minnesota legislature. Every voter will have a choice for Minnesota state representative and Minnesota senator. For the rest of the hour, we will focus on the Minnesota House. There are 134 members of the House. Right now, the Democrats hold 75 of the House seats. And they are in charge of the House agenda right now. Melissa Hortman is the DFL Speaker of the House, and Kurt Doubt is the Republican Minority Leader. They join me now. Thanks to both of you for coming on. And Speaker Hortman, let me start with you. Uh, Give us a rundown, a minute or so. What are the main issues DFL candidates for the House are talking about as they campaign this year? 
Well, really consistently across the state, we find that Minnesotans value uh, a good life for themselves, but they also want that good life for the members of their family and their neighbors. And to Minnesotans, when we talk to them about what that means, they want affordable and accessible health care. They want world-class education and job training opportunities, and they want economic security in their family. So they don't just want jobs, but they want jobs that will pay a living wage and jobs that will allow them to take time off when they need to if somebody in their family is sick or if they themselves are sick so that they can prevent bringing that illness into the workplace. And we find uh, whether you're talking about the Iron Range or, or the farming community communities of southeastern Minnesota or the suburbs, that these values cross all geographic divides. Minority Leader Kurt Doubt, what about Republicans? What are the big issues your candidates are stressing? Yeah, well, thanks first for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with folks today. Um, you know, without fail, and I have been out personally knocking on uh, hundreds of doors already, and, and we'll knock on thousands probably before the election is, is here um, so I've talked to a lot of voters, and without fail, the number one issue that people are talking right, right now is public safety. Um, they want to make sure that their families are safe, that their uh, communities are safe, and, and uh, um, it is by far, without question, the number one issue. I, I knocked in one of the suburbs recently, um, and every single door that I knocked on where I actually talked to somebody, I always asked them, you know, what, what issues are important to you this election cycle? And without fail, every one of them said public safety. Um, and, and, you know, this is an issue where Democrats have really failed to stand up and say that they will, uh, you know, adequately fund our police departments and support our, our police officers and uh, step up and make sure that we keep our communities safe. And, and I think the unrest that people have seen um, is a direct result of, of Democrats in Minneapolis not willing to stand up and, and make sure that we're keeping people safe. So um, that by far is the number one issue. I also want to say I agree with everything that Melissa said. Um, you know, health care and jobs and all of those things uh, are things that we support as well. And, and the difference between us and Democrats is we actually have policies that will accomplish those things without hurting Minnesota families and without increasing the cost of health care uh, like they have. So um, I'm, I'm eager for a great conversation here. Speaker Hartman, you didn't mention that public safety issue. Um, uh, how do you respond to Republicans making such a big thing out of it as they campaign around the state? And and what uh, what Kurt Doubt said about voters bringing it up? Well, what what Kurt Doubt said about Democrats and public safety is just false. Uh, DFLers both support local law enforcement, and we support reforms to ensure that public safety extends to every member of our community. Uh, if it weren't for DFLers in the, at the Minnesota State Legislature, we wouldn't have strong workers' compensation that covers police officers who need to take time off due to post-traumatic stress disorder or COVID-19. Uh, police officers wouldn't have the right to uh, form unions and negotiate for pay and benefits, and they wouldn't have strong pensions that are protected. Democrats at the state level strongly support fully funding public safety, and the Minnesota House of Representatives has passed full, robust public safety funding over to the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate now um, at least twice um, this year in May and again in June, fully funding uh, the Department of Corrections, preventing any cuts to any of our prisons, uh, testing the untested rape kits, and then paying for probation officers. We just cannot get our Senate Republican colleagues to stand up with us and fund public safety to the level that it needs to be funded. Uh 
Kurt Dowd, let me ask you a question. Uh, Vice President Pence was in town yesterday campaigning with people whose businesses were destroyed in the, some, by some of the looting and rioting that followed the killing of George Floyd. Why isn't the uh, state helping those folks rebuild right now? And why did the federal government uh, reject um, an emergency declaration? Well, right now, there hasn't been an ask at the state level uh, for funding. And I think folks are still waiting to see what insurance will cover and what it won't cover. And uh, neither Democrats or Republicans at this point have have made a proposal or asked for money uh, for that support. I assume at some point we're going to have that conversation. uh, But I think everybody's kind of waiting to see what is insurance covering and what isn't it covering. And it's going to take some time to rebuild these businesses. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I think uh, I toured those businesses a week after the the events. I think, uh, well, I know that uh, Melissa, the, the speaker, was on that same tour. And, you know, it was kind of shocking to hear business owners saying that they, night after night, were, were guarding their businesses or had friends or family who had permits to carry a, a weapon standing out in front of their businesses, making sure that nobody burned their business down. And, um, and, and shocking that they knew that they had to do that on their own because uh, they you know, our public safety didn't have orders to send those people in. I had one business owner tell me that on Friday they were told by the governor that there was a curfew and they could not, no longer be out on the streets as they had done for two or three nights guarding their businesses. Um, there was a curfew. You cannot be on the streets. If you're on the streets, you'll be arrested. Don't worry. The National Guard will be here. Um, those people didn't. And, and I know Melissa heard the same thing because we were on the same tour. Uh, those people didn't. They listened, they listened to our governor and they didn't guard their businesses on those Friday on that Friday night. And the National Guard was not there. And that's the night that most businesses burned. Um, and, and I think, you know, Democrats cannot say that they support public safety when we've got, you know, representative uh, elect or soon to be representative elect John Thompson, who's going to win a seat in St. Paul, stood in a in a suburban neighborhood in the driveway of a police officer and a reporter and beat an effigy of them in their driveway while making terroristic threats about their family and the community. And two days ago, when Governor Walls was asked about that, if whether he would rescind his endorsement of that person who was making terroristic threats in a, in a, in a driveway of a police officer and a reporter, and the governor said, gee, I'll have to think about that and make a decision on that. All right, well, There's look- nothing to think about. Uh, if you either stand with public safety or you don't, and our police officers right now have rescinded numerous endorsements of Democrats because they refuse to stand up against that behavior. Okay, Democrats uh, Speaker, do not support public safety. Speaker Hartman, uh, response, please, on the John Thompson issue and whether Democrats support public safety. Well, as I've responded before, we have fully funded public safety. We have stood with police officers on workers' compensation, the right to organize, pay benefits and pensions. And divisive and inflammatory rhetoric is unacceptable. Demonstrations at public officials' homes impacting their family and their neighbors are inexcusable. We do not condone it. We have repeatedly condemned it. That is not the answer to any of the problems that we face as a state and as a nation. We uh, support reform, but we also support our local law enforcement. What we would like our Republican colleagues to do is to condemn the divisive rhetoric that the president himself is using that has inspired white nationalist violence in Charlottesville, at the Tree of Life, in El Paso, in Kenosha, in Portland. Uh, Up in Bemidji, we had the president of the United States of America bashing immigrants in a way that um, immigrants called me and said they felt incited violence against them. 
And so this divisive rhetoric where we where the president is attempting to divide us and to contend that there's like an us and a them uh, and and there's not an us and a them. We're all in it together and we need people like Republicans to condemn this divisive rhetoric because Democrats have condemned it. And Representative Doubt, let me ask you about the president's rhetoric and let me ask you uh, the question I asked Senator Gazelka about this story in the paper this week that uh, Republican candidates for the House and Senate uh, are promoting the QAnon conspiracy theory um, that uh, contends that Satanists and pedophiles run the government. Uh, Would you denounce that? I actually don't even know anything about that. That's how not on my radar it is and how not mainstream it is. Are there some Republicans that that subscribe to that? Probably. But the reality is John Thompson is an endorsed Democrat running for a very, very Democrat seat in St. Paul. He, He almost certainly will be elected to the legislature. He stood in the driveway of a police officer and a news reporter in the Twin Cities in a suburb and swore made right. terroristic threats, threatened to burn down that neighborhood, said we're coming to other su- suburbs, swore at the neighbors, and beat effigies of those people in their driveway. And not only did Melissa Hortman not uh, stand up against his behavior and say he should, should suspend his campaign because that sort of behavior is not welcome, they literally were going to host a fundraiser a couple of weeks later with his name on it. And because of that, because they have not stood up against that sort of behavior, which is happening, and it is a mainstream position in the Democratic Party, the police union has unendorsed a whole bunch of Democrats because they refuse to stand up against that. So, yes, we can detract about some fringe thing uh, that, that isn't a threat to people in the state of Minnesota, or we can, you know, so that, so that we don't have to talk about something and, and a member who will be a member of the House of Representatives and is mainstream in the Democratic Party. And it's shocking to me that Melissa Hortman and Tim Walls can't say to this person, I have done it in the past. Okay. I have said in past elections when a candidate made a comment that I thought was inappropriate, I've asked them publicly to suspend their campaign. Okay, um, you've, you've talked about it a couple times now, but I just want to circle back and see if you're going to denounce this QAnon thing or, or take any issue with some of the things President Trump has said. I don't support white nationalists. I don't support, I don't even know what QAnon is, to tell you the truth. Um, from what I know, it's people that think that people running the government are, uh, you know, uh, pedophiles. You know what? I, I am against pedophilia. I'm against white nationalists. I'm against racism. I'm against all of those things. But I am for keeping our community safe. And that's what I'm standing up and speaking for. And it's surprising to me that Democrats can't stand up behind our, our law enforcement. Speaker Hartman, uh, why not take away the endorsement from J- John Thompson? Well, I have no uh, power over that. That is a local issue. Um, Can you rescind your endorsement local, of him? One at a time, never please. Endorsed, Are you willing to rescind your endorsement of I, him? I need you to, I can't have you talking over each other. Or everybody's going to turn off their radio, and, and we don't want that. Uh, speaker Hartman, go ahead. I mean, what you're seeing with the former speaker is having a little bit of difficulty with the truth. I have repeatedly, including on this program a few minutes ago, condemned this behavior referred to as unacceptable, inexcusable, condemned it that I don't condone it. I do not hand out DFL endorsements. That is an exercise of the people who live in that Senate district to endorse or to not endorse. I do not issue personal endorsements of people that I don't know. This is not an individual I'm familiar with. Um, But what you hear from Kurt Dowd is you hear this vitriolic 
and divisive rhetoric uh, mixed in with a whole bunch of dishonesty about what Democrats stand for and what we don't stand for. And that doesn't do us any good to have people out there saying that Democrats are this or that when it is not true. Um, And Kurt's problem with the truth this morning extends to the issue of rebuilding Minneapolis and St. Paul. We have had repeated opportunities at the state capitol to provide the money to help those small business owners who were visiting with Vice President Pence yesterday. And uh, Representative Doubt has argued on the House floor against providing the funds to give to those small business people to rebuild their businesses in Minneapolis and St. Paul just for the simple fact that those business owners have their businesses in the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, and they oppose funding our our state's uh, financial center. Um, so, you know, what would be, I think, in the voters' best interest is if we have an honest debate on the issues where we're not kind of trying to uh, paint the other side as some sort of uh, demonic um, person, which is a departure from the truth. I mean, I think if we could focus on the actual truth here and what Democrats really stand for, you will find that year in and year out at the state capitol, we have always stood with law enforcement on the collective, the right to collectively bargain, which Republicans try to take away, the right to have good pay and benefits, adequate funding for our local governments so they can afford strong public safety. And then just this year with testing the untested rape kits, providing the Department okay. of Corrections all the resources that they need to keep all of our prisons operating, Republicans won't stand up and pay for the public safety that they claim that they support, but they actually don't vote for. All right. Our, our time is running well, a little short. So I just a lot of divisive rhetoric in what she just <laughs> said and a lot of dishonesty, frankly. We okay. have not brought a bill forward to to take away collective bargaining. These are DFL scare tactics. All right. Um, what well, let, what let I me... want to see is that you do support law enforcement. And right now, law enforcement doesn't think so. And that's why they've rescinded a bunch of endorsements. Of okay. DFL candidates. All right. I think we've covered the law enforcement issue. Let me switch to COVID. Uh, Representative Doubt, you have uh, called for uh, the governor ending his emergency declaration uh, so that we can get on with using their leg- uh, regular legislative process. What would Republicans do to uh, address the COVID pandemic if they took control of the House? Well, I think the first thing is what you mentioned. We need to work together. There's there's absolutely no question of that. I think the speaker agrees with that. Her and I have had conversations. Um, while the governor is in her party and she certainly supports her governor, uh, what, what has happened now is we have a governor that has gone beyond reacting to an emergency and a governor who's actually legislating from the executive branch. Um, and And you know, you know, you can have a debate on whether the legislature is up to the task or not, but I don't think we can just resign to the fact that the legislature isn't up to the task. Um, and I'm afraid that that's what the speaker has done by not uh, getting the legislature engaged in the process. Um, you know, obviously, uh, this is a concern and we need to keep Minnesota safe. Um, early on, I would have made different changes as far as the nursing homes. I was a big critic of the governor's policy. In fact, we had just as high a spike of, of death toll here in Minnesota as Florida did, or as actually Arizona got slightly higher than we did, but, but as high as Florida, their peak was the same as our peak. Um, ours was much earlier than theirs, and it was because our governor was transferring po- COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. There was a lot of people saying, that is a bad policy. Please don't do that. Um, and it took a long time for the governor to change course um, and and fix that. And, and it was the result of the spike. So what we want to do is just follow the data, actually make 
data-driven decisions and, and respond in a way that uh, not only protects Minnesotans, that's our number one priority, but also allows us to function and allows businesses to function. I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, they're going to have high school sports now this fall. I think we have to maintain COVID is here. It's not going away immediately or anytime soon. It's important that we learn to live with it. And I think we've done a better job of that recently. Um, but I think we're best and strongest in Minnesota when we work together. Um, and, unfor- and I think we make the best decisions when we work together. And unfortunately, I have been doing nothing but trying to work with the governor uh, for, you know, six months. And the governor just is, is on his own, not engaging the legislature. And I think it's just, it's unfortunate. It's a missed opportunity. Speaker Hortman, what happens if Democrats retain control of the House? Uh, will the emergency continue? Uh, and how, what do you make of the governor's response up until now? Well, when it comes to COVID-19, the biggest problem that we have is the complete failure of an effective national strategy. Donald Trump has completely failed the American people with 200,000 people dead is the equivalent of having had 67 9-11s in terms of the loss of life. And we still do not have a coherent national strategy. You know, in the same week that we have Dr. Deborah Burks in Minnesota saying to the governor and to me, who were the only leaders who showed up to the meeting with her, that we need to intensify masking, social distancing, um, and uh, hand washing in Minnesota because we're on the verge of an escalation. We have a president who has a, a, um, his political gathering on the front lawn of the White House with nobody wearing masks, sending this message that like masks don't matter. And so the problem that we have on COVID-19 is this complete failure at the national level to have any sort of a coherent national strategy to get COVID-19 under control. We are all so anxious to get back to our lives as they were, to have schools and sports and large gatherings functioning the way that they were, and to get the economy totally reopened. And the only way we get there is to aggressively go after this virus with a coherent and strong national plan. Now, in the absence of a a good national plan and, and a complete lack of presidential leadership, we have 50 state governors doing the best they can to have these coherent, strong plans within their state. And I think the governor has been very clear with the briefings that he has had, um, you know, starting in March every day at two, um, most often covered on, on NPR, very often including the governor and the commissioner of health, being very clear about the dials that we've set and the way that Minnesotans um, ourselves can have an impact on controlling the spread of this virus if we mask, if we socially distance, if we wash our hands and we're careful not to have interactions that we don't need to have with people. So I think the governor's had a strong and effective and coherent response. I think he set out a trajectory in March with those very clear signals and dials, and he has been following that trajectory through the summer. And I in, in my view, the emergency powers have allowed him to do things to keep Minnesotans safe okay. so that we can save more lives. Because that's what this is really about, is preventing needless deaths and preventing needless suffering. Representative Doubt, one of the big impacts of this pandemic has been on the state budget. It looks like you're headed for a big deficit. What would Republicans do about it if they're in charge? Yeah, this is something that just unfortunately nobody right now except myself is listening to or paying any attention to. And I keep I I do appreciate the speaker and I have had some really good conversations and she knows I'm very sincere about this. I've been through the budget as a leader, uh, frankly, more times than any of the other leaders combined. Um, And and it it does worry me. It keeps me up at night. Um, And and frankly, the situation is is much worse uh, than 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 people realize. And unfortunately, our governor, his experiences in Washington, D.C., where you just 
you know, don't have to balance a budget. Well, unfortunately, here we do have to balance a budget. You can't operate that way. Our governor has found only $58 million of savings, um, and he has actually directly increased the deficit with his own actions by about a billion dollars. Um, and, and I want people to be alert of what's going on. We had a, a billion and a half dollar surplus. Uh, we now have, uh, excuse, yeah, we now have a two and a half billion dollar deficit in the current biennium. Our governor is going to spend the reserves down to zero in the current biennium to make up for that. We have a $4.7 billion projected deficit in the tails, which is actually 500, uh, 600, uh, 600 million more uh, because of some accounting shifts that Democrats did in the last biennium uh, to try to pretend like there was a structural balance in the tails when there actually was a structural deficit. So those, those chickens are coming home to roost. Okay. So we have about a 5.4, uh, $5.3, $5.4 billion deficit in the tails. There is no way to get out of that without touching these major areas. You've got to do major tax increases. And I, I'm going to challenge the speaker right now on the air. I want to know where she's, which taxes she's going well, to increase. Cha- challenge her before, quickly because we're almost out of time. B- before an election, the voters need to know that. And if you're not going to do that, you have to cut education. You have to cut uh, uh, nursing homes or you have to cut disability services. There's no way to get through this without cutting those things. Speaker um, Hartman. I'm, I'm Speaker, curious to which taxes she's going to increase Speaker, to get out of this. Speaker Hartman, what are you going to do about the budget problem? Well, there's no doubt about it. With the size of the projected deficit, really everything has to be on the table. In the last budget year, we proposed an honest budget. We increased taxes on corporations that weren't paying their fair share. We have some corporations who have income in offshore accounts. And um, one of the things that was in the Trump tax bill of 2017 was this provision called guilty. And it was about bringing um, uh income that's stored offshore back onshore. And so in our very honest budget in 2019, we raised $1.2 billion worth of revenue and we invested 100% of it in education. We would be putting on the table uh, proposals very similar to that to to help account for the deficit. I'm sorry, but we have to end it there. Uh, This debate will continue at your door from your House and Senate candidates. That's Melissa Hortman, DFL Speaker of the House, Kurt Doubt. Republican Minority Leader in in the House. Thanks so much for listening today. That's our Politics Friday program for now. I'm Mike Mulcahy.